Hey, hi, welcome to Cold Turkey Podcast. This week I am with Blake. Blake actually um, is working in a treatment center uh, in Florida, uh, which um, evo- revolves around music and the heart of music in recovery. And um, we we talked a lot. We talked about his past and you know, like his life story, and we talked a bit about you know, like his his latest endeavor and uh, what is called Recovery Unplugged, which is in Florida. Um, it was a great conversation. I loved it. Um, I, I, I enjoyed it. And, uh, I think we had a, we had a blast, uh, together. It was, it was a great talk. Um, leaving you with a few notes, um, share the podcast, let the podcast be known. You can actually like the Facebook page, Cold Turkey Podcast. You can uh, put a review on where you listen to it, uh, either on Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes. I love reading the reviews. It helps the, the podcast get better known. And without further ado, here's Blake. Enjoy. Hi, Blake. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, well, where are you located? I am in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Ah, so you're, is it cold or how, you know, like what's the weather no, like right now? No, it is the opposite of cold. It was like 90 degrees today. Oh. I know. Yeah. For me, right? I know. <laughs> how is it going up in Canada? <laughs> I, I have to, you know, like where, where's the, do you know where's the break even when we go in minuses? Is it minus ten? You know, because like, uh, you know Fahrenheit and Celsius like has when it goes in minus, it has like a break even. So when when you go past like minus fifteen, for example, it's the same for you and me. It's minus fifteen Fahrenheit and minus fifteen Celsius. So I'm not sure what the break even is, but I'm 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 minus ten Celsius, which is I think in Fahrenheit is fucking cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are you are quite literally a cold turkey. Yeah. I, I am, <laughs> I am. Um, as I do with every episode, um, I'm going to be asking the same question, which is, if if you recall, what is your first memory of you know like either you using or being witness of you know like people in your family or, or friends uh, using and 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 taking substances. Um. You know, I could give you two answers to that because I, I remember both very clearly. Uh, the first one, I, I remember my younger or my older brother, I'm sorry, when I was young, I used to have to sleep on the couch in my, my parents' house. Obviously, I was still living there. I was like 10 years old. And because our grandfather came to, to live with us because he, he lost his wife and he, he decided to come live with us just so we didn't have to leave him alone. And so he took my room. And so it was my job. I had to sleep on the couch every night. And I remember sleeping on the couch one night and my older brother being brought home um, by the police. And I remember the police standing in the kitchen, uh, my parents standing there, and my brother standing there. And my brother just acting completely ridiculous and not really understanding why my brother was acting this way. And my parents yelling at him, the cop trying to explain that he, he got into this fight and that he's not going to charge him with anything, but if this happens again, he's going to be in a lot of trouble. And 
I think they forgot that I was on the couch and I just sat there listening to the whole thing completely confused. And what's interesting is I, I sort of wish my parents sat me down at that point the next to explain. day and explained to me yeah. what was going on. And instead it was just, we never talked about it. Did you and ask your brother? I, we didn't have that kind of relationship. So he's, he was, he's 10 years older than me, uh, about, or yeah. nine years older than me. So I just didn't understand what was going on. And then he just was never home. Yeah. So I, I, I didn't really understand why he was in trouble like this and being brought home by the police is so serious, you know, especially when you're 10 years old. It's Absolutely. Like, you see that in the movies. I yeah. mean, this guy's being brought home by the cops. Uh, and then there was periods where my brother would disappear for 30 days at a time or longer. And it was never explained to me, Blake and my other siblings, Blake, let me sit down and talk to you about what addiction is. And this is what's happening. And your brother got caught up in this and, and started here and it led him down this path and never explained any of it to me. It was just like, yeah, he's away. He's getting better. What is the family picture? What, you know, like if, if you draw me kind of a, cause I, you know, like your grandfather at home when you're 10, I mean, like there's, um, in terms of siblings and parents, uh, what, what does it look like? What's the, what's the situation? So there's five total siblings, uh, including myself, my two parents, and then my grandfather was there for a couple of years. Uh, at, there was also always a, like a nanny or an au pair who lived with us, okay. actually from, from Montreal. Oh, yeah? There was uh, different family members from Montreal from the same family would come down and just alternate years with us. And so, where are you located in that sibling, uh, in, in the, on those five I'm siblings? the second oldest. The second oldest. Yeah. Okay, so there, were, so there was a gap of 10 years between you and your older brother. Right. And then what was your gap between you and the other three? Two years okay. was the next one. And then about five years was the next. And then my, my baby sister is about, about nine years younger than me. Okay. So that's, yeah. that's, that's tremendous between the oldest and the, and the youngest. Yeah. So oh, yeah. So for your youngest sister, she probably almost sees his older brother as like, like an uncle or, you know, like, like. Yeah. And he's not around much. You know, I think we, we look at it now. I think we're all closer now than we ever were back then. It was me fighting with the closest in age to me. Then the two of us bullying the younger brother, yeah. <laughs> the youngest brother, and then the sister being sort of adored by everybody because she was the only girl in the family. And the baby. And the baby, yeah. So she got everything she wanted. Yeah. Uh, you know, my dad was always at work. He's a, an attorney, constantly on the road. So we, we saw him. He was around. When he was around, he's you know a great father. And then my mother... Um, you know, has sort of had issues of her own, but I, I try to leave it out, but yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of the same issues as I had in my, uh, my older brother. Were, were you well. without just, I don't want to, you know, I like dig into that, but you know, like, were you, cause you talk about the, the your brother situation, you know, like yeah. having an impact on you, um, have to ask you, you know, like you're telling me that it, it, did mm -hmm. it have any, um, were you witness of that? You know, like, were you, were you, did you feel or knew it? No, not until later on. Okay. Okay. Um, it sort of developed at the same time mine did, which is hence where my, my pill addiction got started is in the medicine cabinet at home. Okay. Because they were just so readily accessible. So that was your first 
contact with influence was pills. Well, no. With pills, yeah. So, and no, it wasn't the first contact. Uh, when I think about it, so you asked me my first time dealing with with alcohol yep. and drugs. I should have known immediately that I had a problem from the first time I drank. I ended up taking, I think, eight shots of one fifty one rum within about a half hour period, trying to make everybody laugh at this party that I was at. And I, I remember two things from that night. I remember crying on the way home with my girlfriend at the time driving me home in her blue VW bug and me crying for no reason. And then I remember falling asleep on the stairs, sort of curled up on the stairs on the way up to my room and waking up at like three or four in the morning with the cat sleeping right next to my face and just feeling God awful. But at the same time, remembering that I had a good time and not really caring that I felt like like shit. Yeah. Just just feeling like I kind of had a good time and everybody was laughing at me or with me. I don't really care. How old were you when that happened? I was 16 because I my girlfriend and I started to be able to drive right around the same time, but she was a little bit before me. Okay. So she was driving that night because she could drive before I could. Oh, okay. And then about a year later, the first time I, I had tried smoking weed, I smoked at a party at a friend's house and I thought like, okay, what do you do when you're high? You're supposed to show love to everybody. So I started walking around hugging everybody at the party and I guess I hugged the wrong guy's girlfriend. And the next thing I know, my head's getting shoved through a wall. And it, there's this whole big fight and there's still actually, because he's still one of my best friends, there's still a marking on that wall from where my head went through it. But, and I woke up the next day and that's normally a terrible experience. I kind of ruined the party. There was a fight and I didn't even fight back. I mean, I had no idea what was going on, but I woke up the next day kind of like, well, that was fun. Like I was sort of the center of attention and that, I think that fulfilled something in me. So the drugs and the alcohol kind of gave me an identity of like, yeah, I was acting like an ass, but at least everybody was looking at me and, yeah. and paying attention to me. And what kind of kids were you? Because middle kids, you know, tend to kind of blend in, uh, you know, like, and, and you were in the middle, well, not right in the middle, middle. but you know, like yeah. a, a bit in the middle. And I guess your older brother got a lot of attention because of his issue, his own issues. Um, so what well, kind of they kid- got a lot of attention. Then my younger brother, young, just a little bit younger than me, also had some other disorders and other issues that that was sort of behavioral problems. Okay, that took a lot of my parents' attention. I mean, a lot of their attention. And then you've got the two younger ones too. So there was a full household. My mom's hands were full, and a lot of what we were doing was being raised by a, a nanny. Yeah, you know. So I, I think. A lot of my intention-seeking behavior, or even my issues still today, which is a constant fight of wanting to be liked by everybody, can really, you know, not not to get too like psychotherapeutic here, but could really go back to to just my household. Exactly. And not, not blaming my parents, but it's just the way that the cards fell. Ex- exactly. And and um, so I, my guess is that you were pretty much low profile because you didn't want to, like. Yeah create disturbance to what what already kind of a rocky situation at home. I think my role took on the the comedic relief is that I was always trying to be the like the funny one or the, yeah. the loud one, always trying to willing to do things or be outlandish. Light things up. Light things up a little bit. Yeah. That really, if you look back, is of course attention seeking behavior, <laughs> but it it also shaped who I am today and it made me more of a personable person. And now that I've 
sort of found my way back to, to my roots and my virtues and who I am, I can use some of that stuff today to, to create relationships and to have friends and to, to be more authentic with somebody and to get somebody to open up to me. And, and I tend to say, and embrace it. You know, like I, you know, like I'm, if you, if you're, you know, like, you know, even my, well, I can nowadays call it passion, but you know, like it, it was once called obsessive compulsiveness, you know, like, so. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Yeah, I totally get it. Trust you me. know, so, um, there is definitely something about, um, the fact of using and embracing those, uh, issues and mm -hmm. using it, you know, like, and, 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 and to make it, um, just like a, like the better, make the better of the best of it. Um, I sort of look at everything that's happened to us in life as practice for who we become when, when we're ready to spiritually fit, when, when we're spiritually fit enough to become the person we're supposed to be, everything before was sort of just practice yeah. for that. So I, even the addiction of where you develop these really, these certain behaviors, you sort of, if you look at the behaviors of somebody who's struggling with addiction, who is trying to get a hold of their drugs for the day, it's the same patterns of behavior as billionaires and extremely successful people. It's just that we're sort of using those powers for bad yeah. as opposed to for good. Absolutely. I mean, I think about how creative we had to get just to, to find enough money to support our habit for one day. Oh, Blake, I mean... Just looking and, you know, <laughs> I'm not telling that out of, you know, like um, frustration or whatever, but, you know, like it makes me smile when I'm trying to look for guests and people say, well, I'm going to need to drive 20 minutes to get to your place and record. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, exactly. And, you know, like there's, there's definitely an answer I have for that, that I spare myself from saying, which is like, okay, so you're telling me that looking for your daily dose, mm -hmm. you wouldn't have drove like hours to find it, you know, because <laughs> well, I did, I know. you know, I, guilty as charge here, you know, like I did it, you know, so. Oh, a hundred percent. Are you waiting? I would wait in a parking lot for hours <laughs> where the dealer is always five minutes away somehow. Paging like, I, the fucking guy, you know. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. What is going is on? Where are you? Five minutes away. That was like six hours ago. Nine one one nine one one. I'm dying in my car right now. Please. So those first experience in your teens, um, did you quickly, uh, wanted to like repeat it, you know, like to, to kind of repeat the experience? Um, sort of. So I, it, I did look forward to it and it was exciting to me, the idea of, of sort of, of escaping. And I think that trying so hard to play the entertainer, the, like the alcohol sort of did it for me or like the weed sort of did it for me. Yeah. The one thing I do want to say, though, is my first experience with pain pills, which was really what kind of brought me to my knees, was uh, I had a, a, a minor surgery on my wrist, and the doctor gave me a bottle of pain pills. And back then, this is know, 16 years ago, it was a lot easier to get pain pills, especially in South Florida. And the doctor just gave me a 30-day script like it was no big deal, even though it was a minor surgery. Why would I need 30 days of Percocet? But that's what they did. Okay, so that's what they you did back in the day, and that wanted to that, knock you out. <laughs> I guess so. But so doctors were sort of trained 
that if somebody has got any pain, it's the right thing to do. It's the compassionate thing to do is give them as enough pain pills to make them feel good. Yeah. So that's what happened. And I remember that night taking the pain pills, staying up all night watching DVDs at the time and not going to sleep and just popping one after the next and not even knowing what I'm doing, sort of innocently taking these pills, not realizing what they are, if they're bad, just knowing that I really liked the way they felt. The next morning being in agony when it wears off because my wrist just had surgery and telling my mom that I finished those pills innocently and she goes oh no problem and she calls the doctor and gets me another 30-day script and i end up doing the same thing over the course of the next two days finishing those the script again and then just taking advil from there never really thinking about it that just that really felt good so that was my first experience and then years later once i had a little bit more college experience and understanding what partying is like and high school obviously too but college is where i really kind of took off going back home to my parents' house on a break and seeing in that medicine cabinet this enormous bottle of really strong, like the strongest Percocet you can get and just being like, hey, let me, they're never going to notice if I take from this bottle of 120, if I take three or four. Yeah. And that's really where it started. And I was home for the summer working at Blockbuster for the summer and which is probably one of the most boring jobs of all time. May they rest in peace, by the way. May they rest in peace. You know what's funny is that the whole time while working there, they would have us watch these things called modules about the war against Netflix. Wow. And they, because at the time, Netflix was mailing DVDs to people. And you would go online, you'd pick what movies you want, and they would mail you the yep. DVDs. And there was all these modules of how we can make a better experience for the customers and <laughs> the war on Netflix. But there being the most boring job ever in that summer, I would just – I would smoke a joint on the way to Blockbuster and have a pill, a pocket full of pills and just start popping them and sort of brought that habit back up with me to, um, to college, using them here and there, finding them whenever I could, sort of actively seeking them out, but not every day yet. But that's a, that's a far fetch from the party animal drug. No, I mean, like, you know, like, I guess yeah, it, it It, yes and no, is that I sort of turned into a stoner. Ah, okay. I started going away from the really crazy party animal to more of a stoner type. So I really just wanted to calm down and deal with this anxiety that I had inside. Yeah. And pills did that perfectly for me. For sure. So taking them for a while on and off here and there. And then I was also in a really bad relationship with a girl who also had the same, shared the same love as I did for those pills. And eventually on my, I still remember my 22nd birthday working at a restaurant in Orlando, uh, which is where I was going to school. A guy said, Hey man, it's your birthday. I got a present for you and brought me in the bathroom and gave me a Roxycodone, which is like a 30 milligram, 30 milligram pure Oxycodone pill, not with the acetaminophen like the Percocets had. And he crushed it up, showed me how to crush it up and snored it. And from that day, it all got started where I just every day texting that guy, Hey man, can you bring those again? Hey, can you bring those again? And lo and behold, it turned out his, his dealer was my next door neighbor. I it's before work and I text him, Hey man, can you bring those to work again? And I go outside to go take out the trash or something like that. And I see him pulling up to my neighbors. Uh, and I'm like, what are you doing here? He goes, that's, I'm picking up the stuff. I'm like, Oh my God. So of course he makes an introduction and how convenient. <laughs> 
<laughs> yep. So uh, thanks to pills, college got extended two and a half years. And uh, I went sure. on the, the Van Wilder party plan of just partying as much as I can and taking these pills as much as I can. Ended up moving back home to South Florida and finishing college there and thinking that I would escape my pill addiction. But like any good addict, you seek it out. And I did. And um, so even that geographical cure didn't, uh, you know, like didn't prevent you from either slowing down or, you know, like you, I guess you were hooked by then. Yeah. I mean, honestly, my story is not even that crazy because I'm pretty much what I'm a textbook. I'm a textbook person who struggles with a substance use disorder. I mean, I am by the book. I, it was chronic. It was progressive. It. I tried the ge geographical change and that didn't work. I tried to blame the relationships around me. I blamed everybody else. I tried to switch drugs. I tried, I tried everything. I tried going to the gym to work away my problems in the gym. I tried, I tried everything. I got arrested. I got caught. I got, went to rehab. I, I mean, everything that, that a typical substance user abuser has, I, I went through it all. I, I do ask my guests, um, during, you know, like that from the first time you used to, you know, pretty much when you stop, you know, do, do you recall like the first kind of, um, seeds of you waking up or, or are you using and thinking that can't be it? You know, like that can't be my life, you know, like using like that and, you know, being fucked up to the gills like that every day. And, um, you know what, man, I, I never had that thought, honestly, until I was, it was cleared out of my system for a couple weeks. I was so caught up in the delusion and the lies that I was telling everybody that I, I was a master of manipulation, just like most substance abusers can be. But I presented to you a totally different person than the reality. I always looked at it as during the day, I wore this mask and I was this, this perfect person who was able to do everything and really keep my life together and work three jobs and really hold everything together. And at night, I always felt like the real Blake came out at night. And defend right? that persona at all costs. Oh, and yeah. The yeah. And it's the reason why you wouldn't crack that mask to but show it, weakness or. Well, it, it also, right. And I couldn't show weakness and I didn't want to. And I defended that, that persona at all costs. But at the same time, when I woke up in the morning and put that mask back on, it was like the night before never happened. And that's what was the crazy part is that if nobody knew about it, because it was this whole like secret fantasy land that I lived in. And if nobody knew about that, then it wasn't real. Yeah. So it was like, I wasn't never doing anything wrong, in my opinion, because Nobody knows, and so I'm not hurting anybody. And it's not real. That's it. Uh, the person that you see during the day, that's the real Blake. At night, it's fantasy land time. So what were the first collateral damage of that night shift, Blake? Uh, night shift. Um, <laughs> I, when I went to treatment is when it really all kind of came crumbling down on me. So can you, can you describe what brought you to treatment? Well, it wasn't my first rodeo, like 
going through this. So my family noticed the signs. Uh, it was December 1st of 2012. I just moved into an apartment with my girlfriend who actually turned out now to be my wife, but we just moved into a brand new apartment together. And at this point it was harder for me to hide what was going on. She noticed the weight loss. I, I had some, I call it, it was clean time sort of away from pills, but I was drinking. I developed all these other bad habits that go along with, with anybody who's got an addiction problem. They're trying to fill with outside compensation. Addiction. Yeah. So whether that was sex, drugs, rock and roll, you know, it, does, it didn't matter, man. It Whatever. was all, all of it, gambling, everything. I used to leave, I was a, a server in a restaurant and I used to leave the restaurant late at night and I had to drive by a casino on my way home. And I would just jump in the casino and go put everything I just earned that night on one hand of blackjack just for the rush. It, it didn't matter. I was just seeking some type of, of excitement in my life. So it became obvious that there were some issues. My parents expressed some concerns to my girlfriend. Is there anything going on? She said, no, he seems fine. He seems fine. Until that month really started unfolding in front of her and seeing what was going on with me and the weird like me having to take the trash out seven times in a night when I'm like, cause even away. her didn't notice, didn't know. Yeah. But cause she's, uh, she, she's just not, she's naive to this stuff. If you don't live in this world, you don't know what to look for. And, and probably an award winning codependent like my wife or like my ex-wife is. And you know, like, like just great codependent, which, you know, and like, not even meaning to be, you know, no, no, not no, no, even, no. I mean, I mean, yeah, there's, I, I think there's I, bottom line. I think there's very little there's it's, it's a minority of those individuals, which wants to be that, you know, like they, they end up just like embellishing and, you know, like making the best out of pretty much, you know, like their, their addict husband, right. you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. So then, uh, my sober date actually is New Year's Eve, 2012. So when I, I woke up that morning to an intervention from my family, the girlfriend, my older brother, who now sober and doing really well, you know, really picked up his life, um, not sober in the way that I am, but, you know, he's cleaned up his life in a major way and he's got a family and everything. So he's there, my dad's there, and they got it. They're just holding up a drug test. And I just said, I don't even need to take that. I... I'll do whatever you guys want me to do. I, I know. I mean, at this point, I'm, I'm six foot two. At this point, I weighed like 140 pounds. My skin is gray. I, I needed to go. So they made me take that drug test and I was pissed because the night before I couldn't find my drug of choice. So I, I did like every other drug under the sun. So the drug <laughs> test looked so much worse than the situation was. But I mean, obviously it was horrible, but it just made everything so much worse. <laughs> There's something about testing positive for, for, oxy or like pain pills in front of your dad but then testing positive for cocaine is just like a totally different field of like judgment yeah and uh, uh, my guess is you know like on top of that you know like there was like um the the um, not only is the varnish cracking on that that full mask that you know like you were wearing for so long but um my guess is that um you kind of um dropping your arms, your arms all of a sudden, you were pretty much, you know, like just ready for it. You know, like that there was, you know, like- a, I knew it was coming, man. I, I knew that there was no way that this was sustainable. And I sort of remember telling myself of like, 
eh, whenever they catch me, they'll catch me. And I'll, I know what I got to do. I got to go back to treatment. I got to do that, that again. So I, what I know the first time you went to treatment. Can you do your, yeah, the first time I went to treatment was pretty much court ordered. Uh, and I was able to really just play the poor me card. I got caught up in this, this pill addiction. I don't really have a problem. And because of the way that I look and the way I was behaving and really holding my life together, people believed me and I believed me. Yeah. And I convinced myself I didn't have a problem, even though there was all these underlying issues and I would show up to drug court high on, on like fake, you know, spice, like the fake weed. But I never really looked at it as an issue because again, like nobody really knew what was going on. I had my own little secret universe and I wasn't testing positive, wasn't getting in trouble. So there's no problem. Yeah. What, just to go back to what you said though, even when I, the, my parents came for that intervention and they, I went to treatment that day, I, the, the mask wasn't cracked yet at that point. Cause I no? still was holding it together. Like everything was okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah no problem. You got me. I, I'll go to treatment. It's no big deal. Um, I'm going to, I'll do it right this time. I'm so sorry. You guys are great. I got this. Let me, let me handle it. I'll be, I'll be back in 30 days. I'll do, I'll be fine. It was really about a week or two in when it's like my friends, the girlfriend, ex-girlfriends, whoever, my parents looked into my bank account. Everyone sort of colluded together and put their stories together and realized all of the bullshit that I was up to. And they, they caught me and they got their first glimpse of that nighttime Blake. And my dad called me and was like, listen, good luck finding your way home. We want nothing to do with you. We're done. He went through it with his brother. He went through it with my brother. He went through it with my uncles on the other side. Like, he's like, I'm not doing this again. I'm done. I'm the whole family's done with you. And then they actually didn't answer my phone calls for 45 days. Meanwhile, my girlfriend also at the time found out all the times that I was cheating on her or doing other things that I shouldn't be doing um, as a person in a relationship and found out all this stuff. And it just, all of a sudden it became a reality that like, wow, that nighttime Blake was the real Blake. And that's the person I'd become. And I'm not a good person. How the hell did I get here? And it was like a hard look in the mirror and it literally destroyed me. And that's though was sort of the turning point of when I was like, listen, I'll do whatever I got to do. I stayed in that treatment center for 90 days and really started to work a program and work on myself and got real and got honest and realized that I could not talk my way out of this situation. Um, I'm so grateful to my parents for, for being strong enough because I know that's hard and I'm so grateful for them being strong enough to really kind of write me off for that time period and show me how serious they were. And honestly, that's what inspired me to, to write the book that I wrote that came out this year. Um, and it's not my story. It's, but it's, it's a book that offers through short stories. It's called, I love you more. And it's through three short stories that offer perspective into what it's like to be a family member uh, in a household that's affected by addiction and everybody in the house from the sibling to the mom, to the dad, to the substance user themselves. And the book sort of jumps from person to person. So you can understand what it's like in everybody's shoes so that we can understand that it is a family disease and it affects everybody, not just the I, substance user. It's interesting. You say that, uh, Blake, um, 
my son is 22. Uh, so um, December 31st, uh, 2018, he calls me and um, tells me that he, he just went into, you know, like he's in therapy and just got in. Um, so we spent the first three months of 2019 pretty much together, you know, like when, when he's sober, he calls me every day and, you know, like wants to see me and wants to be with me and, and so on. And, um, he relapsed in March and, uh, I knew right away, you know, like, so, you know, like 20, I mean, almost like 36 hours after not having a call for my son. I'm like, so I came back home and my wife, which is not her mom, um, I looked at her, I'm like, uh, man, I have a bad feeling about uh, my son. You know, and she's like, ah, oh, yeah, f fuck, you know, like, are you kidding? You're like, uh, I don't know, but uh, I kind of know, you know, like mm -hmm. he, he, he would call me every morning and, you know, like he hasn't called me in two days and, you know, like there's, there's something wrong. <clears throat> and since then, you know, like I, I, you know, like the worst of my son has came out, you know, like the, um, I don't know, you know, like, I don't know where he's at in, in his use, but you know, like the, the worst of what he can be has come out of him. And, uh, and the last time we spoke, it was just about, you know, like, like an, an egocentric monster, uh, telling me that I was just a fucking asshole and, you know, like he, he wouldn't want me, you know, he'd rather want me dead. And, you know, like to, there's pretty much nothing he didn't tell me. No. Um, and it's always that, you know, like, it's probably one of the toughest parents decision you have to make, you know, like, which is like, okay, you know, like I, I either cut, you know, like every communication with him until he gets better. If he does, you know, like, which is kind of a game, you know, like it's, you, you're taking a chance, you know, like he, he may not get better, which is, you know, like my guess is that a lot of the, the majority of people either die from it or end up in prison or end up, you know, like in, in the hospital and you we're hurting ourselves using, you know, like, so, so you never know what version of, you know, like your, your son, you're going to get back, you know, like if he does get back. Yeah. His mom decided that, you know, like she'd rather, well, you know, like she learned uh, to be one of the, one of the good codependent with me. Uh, we spent 11 years together and, you know, like now um, she, you know, like she kind of repeats the same thing, which is like covering, you know, like what he does and, you know, like not, uh, really looking at you know like the the, the situation as, as, as it is um but you're absolutely right like it is it is uh it is a tough go to just tell your son you know like okay you know like i'm i'm pretty much through with that i'm done um and i don't know that it works for everybody either you know i don't know that that's always the approach that every family should take is just to say okay well if you're gonna be live this life then i want nothing to do with you you know, I think my parents made the right move was, you know, luckily I've always kind of been a, a compliant person. So when my parents said, you're going to treatment, I'm like, okay. You know, I, I wasn't the type that you're like, oh, fuck you, mom and dad. I'm going to go run on the streets for a couple of days. I'm going to go do this. I, I knew that I was going to rely on them. So I, they sent me to treatment and then they, they got me the help. And then they said, okay, now we're done. But I was, I was the same type. Like, you know, like I'm, I'm pretty much the same type. So I never had issues with my, my family. Um, so my, my father confronted me, um, and I say confronted me, he's a, such a pacifist that, you know, like there was no way, you know, like it, it was just like, um, him visiting me at home and, uh, already had like, you know, like the, like the full house with, you know, like the two 
two kids already and all that but you know yeah. like he came home and he was like just like fiddling around with stuff on my desk and he was like okay so you still using <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah 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 dad but very little he's like oh, okay okay um how much little you know like i'm you know in terms of money well you know like you so you cut your shit and like in four and you're like well about you know like yeah, 50 bucks a week you know like okay okay and so he was just like investigating and asking a few questions in the meantime i didn't know but my ex was actually telling my parents that she would leave me um so that you know like those questions were you know like not out of nowhere right and so he eventually told me well you know like we're december you know like all the seasons season is coming i don't want to bother you with that but you know like we're, we're gonna need to talk you know like when when the holiday season's over and and well, sure thing, you know, like my, my end, my, my sobriety date is February 25th, which is like 21 days, three weeks, day for day after my birthday, which is the fourth. Um, but you know, like my father just like, so I never confronted my father and never went like, fuck you. At the same time, you know, like, you know, like talking to my sponsor, you know, like there's really something about like even protecting yourself from, um, you, you were talking about persona, the, the using, my child's using persona or full-blown addict persona yeah. is, is something I have to almost protect myself from. A hundred percent. And I think you're right. And I think family members need to remember that, that you are a person too, and that you deserve respect yeah. and you, there's no one that can hurt you more than a loved one. So what yeah. the what I think for me, and this is sort of what has become my profession at this point, is helping with families, and that's why the book is about family. It my my belief in a situation is always, you know, sometimes you have to love somebody from afar, and sometimes that means letting them know that you'll always be there for them and you'll always love them no matter what. But I also cannot watch you kill yourself. Yeah. So there's two options on the table, and it's up to you to take and putting the choice in their hands. And having to sort of swallow that hard pill that if they take the option that's not good for them, that it could mean the end of their life. So you can't go back on what, what you're saying either. And that you got to protect yourself and the rest of your family as well and everybody else. So you can't let this person destroy the house. But that person also needs to know that when they're ready, that you're, you will be there and you will love them no matter what. Absolutely. And, 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 and then, you know, like it's, it's, um, it's a, especially when you're, um, when you're working on your own sobriety, um, your father, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing your father didn't go through that. You know, like, so was he, was he like sober or, you know, like going, you know, like, no, my dad is nothing like, exactly. Yeah, so, so in, in my situation, you know, like, you know, like I talk a lot to my sponsor about this, which is like, okay, he's your son, but you're not his sponsor or neither do you're, you know, like, so there's, there's on top of that father son relation, when he was not using, I would, I would be bearing a bit of the responsibility of, you know, like driving him to meetings and, you know, like, so, and, and, and there was a, a point where my sponsor kind of told me, you know, like, okay, if he's not making the effort of either finding new friends and finding, you know, like, like, a, like a car, a car sharing you know, like friend where right. he can drive there and find his own sponsor and so on. Um, you've over, you, you, you've just overstepped your father son relation to, uh, something that you shouldn't 
be and become. And it, it's, it's such a, you know, like it's such a weird dynamic because you know, like you're like, okay, because when, when, when he's, when he's sober, we're, we're almost best friends, you know, like the, the our relation is just crazy. You know, like he's interested yeah. in pretty much everything I do. He, he's following the, the same path in terms of career that I do. Um, but it's, it's, it's such a, it's, it's so, um, yeah, it's, it's a weird dynamic because you, you will fully understand where he's going, what he's going through, uh, or, it, you know, like to the best. You, you, as a person, you separate sobriety <laughs> and recovery from a father and son relationship. Yep. Where that is not a separate thing. So it, it, let's say example for a husband and wife, if they decide to go to treatment, and at the same time, hopefully two different treatment centers, and they, they both come home at the same time, they're not going to work a program together. That husband should have his own meeting, and, and this one should have their own type of program. And they Which gotta, we both know it, it, it rarely happens because, you know, like they're going to share the same ride. They're going to, you know, like they're... <laughs> yeah, but you got to do it because then then it's it's really sort of a version of enabling. And this is a very lonely process. Recovery can be a very lonely process in the beginning, but it's a character building process. Exactly. We need that, that mental toughness and to get through our own obstacles in the beginning so that we can show ourselves that we can do it and build our own self-esteem. I can rely on dad. I can, you know, and it's, it's the mask less building block of your through a new persona. You know, like it's, you know, like, who are you? You know, like, you know, when I said, you know, like uh, earlier that, you know, like you need to embrace who you are. Um, it's something that I think almost, it was two years in that I lost my shit taking, you know, like my, my token. And, you know, like, so I, I came you know, in, in a meeting, I came in, you know, like came, came in front, you know, like, oh, it took my two years. And I was like, I'm that type of guy, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm a passionate guy. I'm, you know, like I do everything like a hundred miles an hour, you know, like if it's either all in or fuck all, yeah. you know, like I'm like that. I'm going to be embracing that from now on, you know, like, so no, I'm going to, you know, like, I don't see that as a flaw. I work in sales. And if it wasn't for that, I would goddamn lose my fucking job. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was all about just embracing who I was, you know, like just telling people that's what I am. And, you know, like I'm, I'm going to make the best out of this, yeah. but it, those are building blocks of that kind of, the true character that you are and, and, and embracing it and accepting it and just saying, well, that's, that's what I am, you, you know? So I don't care who you are. You don't get sober. And in your first 90 days or so, and I don't care what program anybody works. I don't, I mean, I don't care what you do. It's a huge growing process where you're basically learning to walk again. You are a shell of a person in the beginning because yep. your re addiction has brought you so far off path that you need to find out what you even like anymore. What what are your hobbies? What do you enjoy? What makes you laugh? What who do you love? What what is what is it that's going to bring a sense of purpose to your life? What don't you like? You know, all, all the opposites of all the stuff I just said too. You got to figure that stuff out in the beginning too, and a lot of it takes humility. So some of the processes that you were even mentioning before of like finding a ride to a meeting, fuck, I mean, I don't want to ask for help. But yeah, but you kind of got to, and you got to say like, "Hey, you got to humble yourself and ask for help, and admit you don't know the answer to a certain situation, or you can't figure out something by yourself." 
And the opposite, Blake, is right, which is like finding the courage to say no sometimes. You know, like so so it is, as you say, you know, like it, it is just developing your own character and say, well, you know, like I, I don't want to do that. You know, like I yeah, and, and, and 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 you know, like sometimes it's so fucking clumsy that you know, like it comes out like no. You know, yeah, <laughs> oh god. The first time anybody says no is always like a fuck yeah, leave me alone. Stop asking me those things. So many years I've said yes. Right now I'm gonna accept who I am, and yeah. it's fucking no. You know, like and, and almost crying, like okay, relax. You know, like you, you don't want to do it. It's good. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I'm learning how to say no. Please, yeah. <laughs> like a, a sign around your neck that says that but it is it is um i think it is also the fact that you know it's such an egocentric sickness you know like it's it's all about you 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 but in in the in the most disgusting ugly side of this you know like where you know like when i describe you know like embracing um Because, you know, like that, that was pretty much you know, like the, when I say that I, you know, like at two years, I, I embraced who I was and, you know, like what I was. Um, there was also the, can I understand the egocentric part, but I, can I take any merit in not calling my dealer and not buying a six pack of, of beer? Can I take any merit in that? And like, people are like, well, but fuck, yeah. I mean, like, you, 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 you. You're, you're not using, right? And I'm like, yeah, but you know, like, there's always something about you know, like, like leaving to someone else because I, you know, like you don't, you so don't want to be egocentric anymore and be all about you in that ugly sense of things that all of a sudden, you know, like I, I, I felt bad taking merit of not using and 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 being sober, and I was like, can I, can I? congratulate myself not calling my dealer because i you know like, right is that I, my I, ego talking or is it exactly I don't, I don't you know understand. like it was kind of a conflicting thing you know like a <laughs> it's a weird time man early early sobriety is a weird time it's just a strange <laughs> like figuring out and you're doing everything again for the first time and even like sex man is like a weird oh weird experience <laughs> oh. where you're like thinking the whole time and like you're just it's just a strange all you're doing is having a conversation in your own head of like am i doing this right i don't remember is this and you're in a panic and you're not even like enjoying the moment no, everything not at all early recovery is just weird man just weird so speaking of which so you come out 90 days later yeah. of that therapy um what was your you know like without getting into details were you because you said that you now make a living or you work in kind of around sobriety or or in the ecosystem of sobriety yeah at the time what was your what was your job i worked at the mall at a place called celebrity sports that no longer exists selling sports memorabilia so it was one of my three jobs that i had before i went to treatment where this guy okay. was really cool and hired me back at the mall where I would do that maybe twice a week just to supplement my income before leaving. Um, and it was like a, basically a $10 an hour type of job in the mall, just selling memorabilia. Okay. Which is interesting and, because I know nothing about sports, <laughs> but I can tell you a ton about old sports just because I had to, to be able to yeah. sell this stuff. <laughs> I know a lot and about value, Joe Give value yeah. to it. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> Uh, it's worth that. You know? <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, that's, it's value across so, the board. You know what that guy did? Um, when did you want it? You know, like when did that uh, 
kind of, you know, realizing that you wanted to get involved in, in, in helping others? Well, so it started, I, I already had my degree in psychology. So in my first treatment center, I actually, my graduation ceremony was going on during my first treatment. So I did graduate college. I had my bachelor's in psychology and I knew I wanted to get into that field. So where it had started was when I got about 11 months sober, I believe, I started working for a mental health facility for the very low functioning mentally ill and doing the admissions process, also running groups, also driving them around. I mean, really sort of like a jack of all trades for this and found that I really sort of enjoyed the process of helping the person get in the door. And there was also a substance abuse component to what we did. And I really enjoyed talking about that and felt like I was making a difference that it was sort of an inspiration, even if I had 11 months, which isn't that long. I mean, it, it is and it isn't to these people who are struggling and have been struggling exactly. for years. So it, it really felt nice to talk to these people and to be able to sit and have these real conversations of, uh, of relatability and helping to guide them through the process and then let them get into the, this mental health facility and watch them get better. So that place ended up getting closed down, just a lack of funding. It was a state facility, got closed down, um, which is a huge problem here in Florida. We don't have nearly enough beds and nearly enough treatment for that are ran by the state. And ended up getting a job in sort of the, uh, the private treatment sector for a really gr a great place for a long time, for about five and a half years working for a, a one program. And then uh, that place ownership changed and I made a, a change about a year and a half ago now to where I'm at now, which is a place called Recovery Unplugged, which is, I could not imagine working for a different treatment center, a cooler treatment center that totally just empowers the person of who you are. And we use music throughout everything that we do. And it has just brought a whole different type of flavor to my life. It's just such a cool place to be. And, and maybe, maybe you want to explain, you know, like the, a lot of our own, um, treatment center are, are based, a lot are based on 12 step program mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, and some others are either quite inspired by it. Uh, you know, like the, 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 um, it's very limited in terms of flavors, mm -hmm. um, what we can get here in terms of therapy. I mean, like flavors is, you know, like, I guess, you know, like the landscape and the duration mean, yeah. and, you know, like the, 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 you, you, like you just sense. said, you know, like, sorry. No, that makes sense what you're saying. I totally get what you're, what you're, what you know, you're like yours, that. you know, like you, you just mentioned, you know, like the music inspired, you know, like, which is almost like, it, it sounds like team base <laughs> therapy, you know, like you, well, you can, you can making find... music actually. So it's, it's not like that. It's, um, <clears throat> it's very different. So it's, it's using the power music has over our mood and our emotions, which everybody uses music every single day. Yeah. I don't care who you are. It's taking that and putting it together with the traditional models of therapy that we know work when it pertaining to substance abuse, we, you know, really working on the thinking and the behavior process. So taking that in conjunction with the music piece that's intertwined throughout everything that we do uh, really helps us access a different part of the brain and get. And I love that, Blake. You know, like it, 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 it's my question related more on: Is there a lot of different flavors of you know, like the the? Yes and no, uh, of of types of treatment. You mean? Yeah. So we we are one of a kind in what we do with the music, but it's, okay, it's there are different. <laughs> 
you know how you have like vanilla bean and then you have French vanilla and then you have yeah. like vanilla, <laughs> I don't know, whatever. So there, there's a lot of different variations of vanilla that are around okay. of treatment centers that are typically doing a, a treatment model that was designed 20, 30 years ago uh, that really hasn't been updated. That not really, doesn't really speak to the current generations and what they're going through. And it doesn't really, yep. it hasn't really changed to what the current generations are looking for which is more attention, more of a positive focus, uh, more of an individualistic ap approach, looking at the person as a whole and saying, what, what makes you tick? What excites you? So a yeah. lot of treatment centers don't do that. Um, and that's where I'm finding what Recovery Unplugged and where I work now does. Um, and, and to explain to what, how my job has sort of evolved, you know, you said it's in the, the addiction treatment realm. And I'm sorry if I get excited, like I'm passionate about this stuff. Uh -huh. um, it's turned from doing working admissions, helping people get into treatment now more to this really cool position where I get to travel the country doing public speaking and educating schools, going to middle schoolers, high schoolers, colleges, or going to workplaces and educating the people who don't understand addiction, helping to help them understand addiction and how it gets started. And bringing a difficult conversation to a place where it's typically taboo to talk about and getting that conversation started. And really, we know the country is struggling horribly. We know most people are in the closet about it too. So if somebody could get that conversation started, maybe they can get help a little bit sooner. And you, you, I mean, down South right now, and I mean, from, from my, from our perspective, both the opioid crisis and even the meth crisis oh, yeah. as we we haven't been hit as much as you know like i listen to a lot of our u.s counterpart podcasts and you know like the the it seems to have hit you way stronger than it has hit us yet my guess is yet um i, I mean toronto up in canada toronto is like it's bad with the heroin and the opiates and it's the, with the overdoses are really bad in Toronto. It's starting to make its way up there, but it, it's a worldwide issue that we're dealing oh, with crazy. right now. I mean, it's, it's our, unfortunately our American culture and the way that we look at consumerism and the way that we look at value seeping into the rest of the world and yep. it's starting to make people feel like they're not enough. And that's what happens is you seek some type of, something to fill that hole and fill that void when you don't feel like you're enough and drugs are the most easily accepted and most e easily accessible option. I have to ask you, Blake, because I'm, I'm right in that, um, discussion in my head right now. Uh, what's your take on, you know, like being fashionably sober, you know, like there's a lot of, you know, like that, like that, the sober October and, you know, like the, 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 you know, like the, the, we have the February, the 28 days sober and you know like yeah, what's yeah, your, yeah. What's your they, take uh, on this dry, you know like dry you, january you know, like, and yeah uh, and you know like there, there's something about you know like being trendy which i i thought was like a great thing at the beginning but there's something in my mind that goes like oh hold on here you know like the, there i have to make a distinction a, 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 a major distinction between someone doing a selfie of a mocktail doing dry during dry January yeah. on Instagram 
and 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 me for fuck's sake <laughs> which you know like I, I think you know like my you know like okay, which but- i truly believe that my you my next use could kill me you know like so um okay but why 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 does there have to be a differentiation? you know what i mean so i that person's life and their mocktail and they're they're trying it out like good for them you know, oh, yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what you got to do for you. So the way that I'm looking at it, I, and I guess this is all because of the way that what my sort of mission has become as far as the speaking going, the speaking is going is that my mission is sort of, and what I think a ton of people are doing amazing work in this place, and I'm, I'm barely even scratching the surface, is uh, of normalizing it, normalizing sobriety and really refocusing the idea that being high or being drunk is what's cool. If people want to make a dry January and make sobriety cool, then please, God, let's do it. Because it's it's sort of going in the right direction. And sobriety, whether you are an alcoholic or not, being sober in social situations where people are typically drinking forces you to take a look at yourself and grow as a person. So I, I, I'm sort of a... I'm a proponent of it. I think it's a kind of a cool thing that we got going on. Do I and I am it- too, I am too, Blake, but you know, like there, there was, uh, I was just curious about, you know, like what was your take on it? Because I initially was just like embrace, embracing it because obviously it's convenient for, you know, like, like even the mocktail thing, you know, like it's convenient for us. You know, like I, I was, probably getting fed up of drinking sprinkling water with fucking lime in it you know like so yeah <laughs> having a mocktail you know, <laughs> the mocktail fashion thing is quite interesting the mocktail because i thing drink is something else for us man <laughs> I, 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 don't ruin this for us exactly. we're getting all these awesome drinks now <laughs> exactly so i love that part it's just that you know like um you know like that there was um further along the people that i've met i've met a few which had kind of the 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 um, and and they actually told me you know like they they could drink again you know like that they they could use again sure and i was like okay you know like that's that's a different take on it you know like and there's my guess is that there is a distinct difference between someone that um you know like the the I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. You know, like where, where you know, like there is a difference between you know, like being an, an fashionable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, a hundred percent. And I've definitely like I, I enjoy sort of having those conversations with the people who are fashionably sober, of saying like, oh, why? So why did you stop drinking, or why aren't you drinking? Oh, I'm trying it out for the month. Uh, why don't you drink? They, they ask me. I'm like, well, because if I had one drink, I'll be. I'll be butt naked dancing on every single table in here. So there's a reason, like I, I have a very different reason. I really struggled with it. So, you know, we all have our paths to it. I think, uh, you know, if, look, if they want to make it fashionably cool to not drink and to be out in public and, and really do some soul searching, then I'm all for it, man. I think it's a cool, it's a cool thing. And, you know, fads are going to come and go. So as long as like. They keep the mocktail menu. As long as they keep the mocktail menu coming, man, I'm I'm happy. <laughs> Blake, thanks a lot for your time. You know, like uh, uh you know, <clears throat> I, you were talking about you know, like kind of finding your your um, your calling uh, through you know, like uh, the what you're doing right now, mm-hmm. and uh, 
I was telling someone, which was a guest a few months ago, and I met him a few weeks ago. And he was telling me, you know, like, how, how does the podcast go? So I'm, I'm like, I kind of don't care anymore. You know, like the, the, the fact that I'm having that conversation with you from Florida yeah. um, is, it's so it, you cool, know, like, right? oh, you had, you know, the, I, I realized that during the holidays, you know, like I had a few in the bank and, you know, like, so I published, they were published, um, like automatically. And so I had no schedule of, you know, like recording and all, and then realized that one, I was missing it. And two, how much in the last year I grew from interacting with folks. Um, yeah. because, you know, like just in, you know, like th that, that reflection I had, for example, on, you know, like being fashionably, um, sober, uh, you know, like I'm juggling back and forth with it. And then I'm having that discussion with you, which gives you, a, uh, give me a new take on it. And I'm going to be just like, my brain is going to go fucking crazy. About <laughs> this. You know, just like, like, just going back and forth. Like, well, he's right. You know? <laughs> Hashtag and, and appreciate the mocktails. Exactly. 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 And, and, but, but that, that being said, um, there's, there's, uh, there's so many take and so many take on not only, you know, where we're, we're coming from, but, you know, like how we handle the adversity of it and, and how, um, how we grew and matured in, into becoming the human being that we were becoming, yeah. um, that, you know, like I'm, I'm so grateful in meeting with new people. Um, so for that, you know, like you're part of that, that, you know, like that, my own timeline and you know like i'm i'm, I'm super thankful that you accepted the, the invitation no I, and I appreciate you talking to me and i appreciate you opening up about your son and talking about that situation and hoping for the best for you with that and hoping the best for him and stay in touch with me this was awesome i really appreciate you it's a good conversation a, a, an hour flew by it did where can we find you blake uh, you talked about a book. Maybe give us a, a bit of, you know, like where we can find you, where we can find your book. What's the title of the book? And yeah. Um, the title of the book is I Love You More, Short Stories of Addiction, Recovery, and Loss from the Family's Perspective. I don't expect you to remember that. So go to blakeevancohen.com. And that's where my website has everything on there. You can book me for speaking engagements. You can Whatever you need to know about me, my blog is on there. Anything that, that you want to know is all on there. Also, you can go on Instagram at Blake Evan C. Awesome. And all of these links will be provided in the description of the podcast episode. Again, thank you. And uh, well, you, we'll, we'll, we'll be seeing and talking to each other for sure. Awesome, man. All right. It's all a right. Pleasure. Take care. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.